If you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke once again. Thanks for your prayers for our family. Thank you to the pastors and elders for filling in for us while we were away. Thank you for Pastor Harry's sermon also while we were away. But it's so good to be back, and I just want to thank you again for uh, your intercessions for our daughter and for our family. And I just want to encourage you to please keep those prayers coming. Luke chapter 1, we have an Advent series that we are wanting to uh, have as a church family. We're entitling it Eyewitnesses to the Incarnation, and Pastor Matt did a wonderful job of introducing the overall theme of the book of Luke and really ramping us up for our study together over these next few Sundays. Just as a reminder, Um, Luke, as was mentioned last week, the author of this gospel, as well as the sequel, which is the book of Acts, is the only Gentile author that we have of the New Testament. And he has as many verses that he has written, actually a few more than the Apostle Paul. So the most prolific writer of the New Testament would would be Luke. And we also found, and it was mentioned last week, that he is a physician. The way we know that he's a physician is from Colossians chapter 4, uh, verse 14, that refers to Luke as the physician. It's been stated, and I think probably well, a pastor sees a person at their best. That's generally true. A lawyer sees a person at their worst. And a doctor, well, they see a person as they are. And Dr. Luke does just that. He uses some medical terms, as Matt mentioned last week. One of them you'll notice right away. Maybe you won't notice it, but it's there in verse number two. He says, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. That word eyewitness, we get our word autopsy from. In fact, if you were looking at it in the Greek and it were transliterated, it almost says autopsy. And the picture here is these eyewitnesses weren't people that were just casual observers. They actually intently looked at cause and effect of the events that took place. And in the interviews that Luke had with these eyewitnesses, he then was under the inspiration of the Spirit able to provide for us this gospel as well as the sequel, the book of Acts. I want to today enter the first narrative that is included in the gospel of Luke that really prepares us for the nativity narrative and the birth of Jesus Christ. Over the next few weeks, you've probably already heard this song, but I know it's a favorite of many of you in this room. It perhaps is your favorite Christmas carol of all time, The Twelve Days of Christmas. I know you love singing about those partridge in the pear tree, those two turtle doves, those French hens, those four calling birds, and so on and so forth. No, you don't. But anyway, it's become part of the cultural remembrance of, of Christmas. But what may surprise you, and what you probably think you know but you don't know, is when are those 12 days? Are those 12 days of Christmas before Christmas or after Christmas? Well, everybody at the mall believes, and everybody at Walmart and Target think it's the 12 days before Christmas, because once Christmas Day hits, it's all over for them. Because the day after Christmas, you're just going to bring it all back. But actually... The 12 days of Christmas were part of the church tradition, the early church calendar. And I'm not here to suggest that that's something that we need to to observe. But maybe it's something to consider when we're trying to fight the commercialization 
and the frenetic activity that causes us to lose the sense of longing, the sense of brokenness, the sense of Advent that we're supposed to be enjoying right now. Because those 12 days originally started on Christmas Day and they would go all the way to January 6th, which is known as Epiphany, or the day that traditionally the Magi came and brought their gifts to the baby Jesus. Now, whether that happened or not, it has been a good occasion. And if you are a strict um, church calendar observer, you would hold off in singing your Christmas carols all the way till Christmas Eve. Now, there are some of you in this room that have strict orders in your family. No Christmas songs until after Thanksgiving. And you, you really um, make sure that that mandate is carried out. I just gave up at my home uh, basically after July 4th. Let it go, right? No, it's not quite that bad. But what I am saying is when there is a celebration before there's a lament, it takes away something from the celebration. You see, in the church calendar, there is four weeks of Advent before the celebration of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And that's intentional because those four weeks were supposed to remind people that the word Advent means coming. So it was not only a celebration and a remembrance of the incarnation, the first coming of Jesus Christ, but looking forward to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And Advent was supposed to be a time of longing, a time of yearning, a time of reminding ourselves and one another that we are in a broken world that is in desperate need of light in desperate need of a Messiah, a Savior, to put it all back together again, to make the wrongs right. I do wonder if, in our sense of ignoring the church calendar and thinking of not singing Christmas carols to Christmas Eve is so aghast for many of us that we've lost a sense of the longing. And so when Christmas Day comes and the 26th comes, we're kind of like, I'm glad it's all over rather than actually allowing our hearts to be prepared for the celebration of the incarnation. And I want us to pick up on this. This is how Luke begins. If there was a gospel of the four that is the best, most seamless segue between the Old Testament and the New Testament, I would suggest that it is the gospel of Luke. Because the gospel of Luke, physician Luke, doctor Luke, is going to remind us of this longing of this yearning for God to keep his promises. And because the narrative of the birth of John the Baptist and this miraculous birth or the ability for them to have a child, that's given to us first. It reminds us of what's been happening prior to the birth of Jesus Christ. And maybe you, as well as Zechariah and Elizabeth, can relate to the brokenness that we live in. I've heard this often, and perhaps you've heard it even this year. We need to be careful about our celebration at Christmas because Christmas is a hard time for some people. I'm not here to argue that it's not a hard time for some people, but I am here to argue as a pastor, as one of your pastors, why is it a hard time for people? You see, what we find in the New Testament is actually the reason why Christmas is so grand The reason why the news of the incarnation is worthy of our celebration is because Christmas is so hard for people. In fact, the world is so broken, so sin-sick, that a Savior being born to rescue us from our darkness 
is the greatest news ever given. But because Christmas has become so self-focused, so focused on what we get and what we receive, and even what we give, and all of the parties and all the festivities, and again, as Pastor Matt said yesterday, we're not trying to make you feel guilty if you have celebrations. We all do, and enjoy them. But as believers, if we've ever wondered, why is Christmas hard for people? It actually ought to be hard for everybody leading up to it. If we really have an Advent, it will make the Christmas celebration so much more real to us. So what is your brokenness right now? How close is it to you? For some of us in the room, it's closer than others. Some of us are experiencing the divisions, even in the body of Christ, maybe family friction or other relational fractures. Some of us are very much fearful right now of family members who are facing heart-wrenching trials. Some of us are suffering because we have friends who are suffering physically and emotionally and spiritually. Then we start talking about what's going on on our planet. And we know there's persecution of Christians that we will never know about until we're in heaven. There's terrorism, there's COVID, there's inflation, there's mass shootings, there's natural disasters, and then I haven't even mentioned my own struggles of idolatry and lust and unbelief. But if the church, if we began to remind ourselves of our brokenness, before we celebrate the incarnation, could we reclaim the celebration of Christmas? I know I'm speaking to some of you that have already shared with me your annoyance, your sadness and despondency that Christmas has become so much about stuff and so little about the Savior. So what do we do to reform ourselves? I want to suggest to you that Luke helps us here. And here is the big picture of our narrative that I'm going to read for you. And I want to give it to you, and I want you to see it as we read it. Here's what we learn. The Lord is at work in the darkness even when it is not apparent to us. The Lord is at work in the darkness, in the brokenness, in the mess, even when it's not apparent to us. Let's begin our reading in verse 5. These are familiar words, but key in with me. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. There appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years." 
The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be mute. You will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, the wife, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. The Lord is at work in the darkness, in the brokenness, even when it's not apparent. I just want to share two uh, large points here for you before we enjoy Lord's table together. Here's the first one. If you'll turn back to the beginning there in verse 5, just that first phrase, God is at work in the darkness providentially through history. God is at work providentially in the darkness through history. What Luke is going to do here, and Matt mentioned it last week, is he is going to establish things in history. In fact, not fiction. There's no once upon a time here. You'll notice that what he does is he does something very risky. He uses historical activity and facts, and he uses an atlas. He gives geographical location. So anybody who wants to fact check Luke, they can do it. You can just go to your history book, see if there was a guy named Herod who was king in Judea, see if there was a place where Zechariah was part of the priest. Did these things take place? What, Zechariah is, what Luke is doing here is he's establishing all of these things in historical fact so that we will have certainty. Now he says early on in the prologue, that's why he did it for Theophilus, so that he would have certainty. Do we have certainty that these things happened, folks? You don't have to answer out loud, but, but do you believe the things that we are going to read, even the familiar chapter 2 of Luke, do you believe these things actually took place? What Luke is doing here is he's taking the extraordinary and he's placing it and embedding it in history. So if you reject one, you have to reject the what? The other. Luke actually is making himself very vulnerable here. It's similar to when Paul does this in 1 Corinthians 15. Do you recall in 1 Corinthians 15 when he's establishing that Jesus Christ bodily rose from the dead? And he says, if you don't believe it, there's 500 witnesses that saw him in his new resurrected body, and some of them are still alive. So go interview. Go have coffee. If you don't believe me, go sit down with an eyewitness. Go sit down with somebody who had an autopsy. So what Luke is doing here is he's establishing everything in history, but he's doing more than that. He's saying that God has been at work all along in the darkness, providentially, through history. Nothing is happening accidentally. He starts with Herod. Now, if you're reading the Gospels, you need to be familiar with the Herods. There are a, quite a few of them. They were known, this dynasty, as the Herodians. This is the first Herod of a long list of Herods. He's referred to as Herod the Great. Julius Caesar had appointed his father, Antipas, as the procurator or the governor of Judea. And somehow, Antipas was able to work a deal so that Herod, his son, 
became the perfect of Galilee, northern part of Palestine. Herod the Great, or Herod I, was very successful early on. There was a problem in Israel, and it happens to be the same problem today in Palestine, and that was terrorism. But Herod took care of that. What Rome would do, it was very wise, when they would take over a country, they would place somebody in government that was somewhat acceptable to the people, perhaps. And Herod had married a Jewish woman, an heiress there of the Hasmoneans, and she was very wealthy and very noble and very well-known. So there was this opportunity to try to get goodwill with the, the country that you had taken over. So Herod was that guy, and he had successfully outed the terrorists. He had imprisoned some, he had executed others. But then all of a sudden, the Parthians came in, and they were a different kind of terrorist. They were like the worst terrorist. And Herod was frightened by this and actually went to, and fled to Rome. And Anthony, as well as um, Octavian, encouraged him to go back. You can take care of the Parthians. And if you do, we're going to give you a new title. You know what Herod the Great's new title was? King of the Jews. He was excited about his new title. He was motivated. He came back and he defeated the Parthians. He was also very well known for his construction, his general contract ability. He not only renovated the temple to an amazing state, the 35 acres of beauty, but he also built amphitheaters, he built athletic entertainment um, theaters, he built racetracks, he revived Samaria, he built a beautiful port city of Caesarea and donated it or in honor of Caesar Augustus. But he was also a very jealous, suspicious guy. He was cruel. He was always aware that someone was going to try to take his power. And so in that little statement that Luke makes, in the days of Herod, king of Judah, all of the Jews would have said, this is a dark, oppressive, broken time. God has abandoned his people. You need to realize that there has been now 400 years since there's been a prophetic word from God to his people. Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, ends with the word what? Curse. 400 years of silence, theologians refer to this period, or the intertestamental period. 400 years, no prophetic word. And now they have Herod over them. The children of Israel and Israel as a nation has gone in and out of captivity. They've been in and out of the thumb of tyrants. And here again they are. And Herod was so jealous that he became suspicious of people like the high priest and he had him drowned. But this high priest was not just any high priest. It was his brother-in-law. He went to the funeral and actually feigned weeping. His wife wasn't happy that her brother had been drowned by Herod, so he killed her. He had nine other wives, so he was fine. He killed three of his sons in his rage and his suspicion. He was so hated that he realized no one would mourn his death. And so Herod the Great had an order that when he was about to die, he arrested the nobility in Jerusalem. And there was an order that on his death, they were to execute all of the nobility where at least someone would be crying in Jerusalem because of his death. And in Judea, in Galilee. But also there was the horrendous killing of the children in Bethlehem, you recall in Matthew chapter 2, after the Magi had come and visited, and they said, where is he that is born king of the Jews? What did Herod do? He wanted to visit too. He said, I want to worship him. But that was all hypocrisy. 
He wanted to kill the child. He wanted to kill any rival. And because they went another way, because an angel warned them, you recall that he began to kill. He killed all, he had ordered to kill all of the sons two years and younger in Bethlehem. This was Herod. He's a wicked, vile tyrant. Josephus says of Herod the Great, he said that it was safer to be Herod's pig than to be Herod's son. He was a fox, as Jesus referred to him. But this is the kind of brokenness that the Son of God is going to come into the world. And Luke is going to just give us this historical backdrop, and he's going to say, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, the despot, the tyrant, the dictator, the cruel savage, he was in charge. Does that change your Christmas celebration? This is what life was like on the ground. So under the domination of someone as wicked as Herod, the Lord was at work in the darkness. What are we to take from this, this one little statement, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, we're to be reminded that what causes us to celebrate the incarnation in much, in, in, in many ways, is the backdrop of the brokenness and the darkness that was happening on the planet at the time of Jesus entering the world. And what Luke is going to remind us of is this was the days of Herod. So the first point I want you to take with you is this. God is at work in the darkness providentially through history. Are you able to believe that now? I mean, we just went through COVID-19, I think. We've gone through contested elections. We've gone through arguments and threats from China. We're in inflation. We're told that our environment is about to implode upon us. I mean, there's a lot to be scared about. There's a lot of brokenness in our world. And I want to remind you that these moments of Advent, these weeks of leading up to the celebration of the Incarnation, chapter 1 of Luke comes before chapter 2 of Luke. Profound, yet helpful. Here's the second point I want us to make, and this is the rest of the narrative that we read together. God is at work in the lives of his people even when they are unbelieving. God is at work in the lives of his people even when they doubt, even when they're unbelieving. Is this not soul food for us today? Zechariah, he is not the kind of guy that heard the angel speak and said, oh great, that's super news, I can't wait to tell the wife. He was like, she's old, I'm old. These things don't happen. And what does Gabriel say? I'm an angel. <laughs> Pipe down. God is at work in the lives of his people even when they are unbelieving. Aren't you glad to know that God is particularly sovereignly at work in the lives of those who love him and are called according to his purpose? When we studied Romans 8 together a few months ago, we were reminded that this is not something that every human can claim. It is not right for you to say to an unbelieving person, and if you're an unbelieving person here today, it is not theologically accurate. It is not biblical for me to say to you everything in your life is happening for a purpose. I have no scripture passage to bring that to bear. 
Hear me. There's one type of person that God gives the promise that all things are working together for their good. What kind of person is it? Those who love God and those who are what? Called according to his purpose. The divine calling and salvation, justification, these are God's people. And those people, God is at work in their lives sovereignly. And what we see here is that God is at work in Zechariah in Elizabeth's way, in a unique way because of his divine love and his divine relationship with them, even when they don't believe. Now, those of you that are into videography or you're into seeing different camera angles, I find myself fascinated now with all of the technology, particularly with watching football games and how this, you know, the, the the HD, and I don't even know what D it is now. They've got all these camera angles. You've got cameras kind of swinging on the field, on the top of the field, and you've got these angles. Everybody's in 3D or 4D. It's just really cool. But you see the angle kind of switch here? He, he's focused on Herod, this despot, and then immediately he's on Zechariah from a little village. He's a priest. There's 18,000 priests in Jerusalem, in Israel. That means there's not enough work to go around for 18,000. In fact, here's what a priest would do. It says here that Zechariah was a priest and he was married to Elizabeth who was a daughter of Aaron. So her dad was a priest. Her brothers were priests. This is a family of priests. And what we have here is we're told that Zechariah, this priest, according to verse number 6, and he had a wife, I'm sorry, a priest named, verse number five, a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And he's going to describe these two people. So before I tell you about Zechariah's moment, his big moment, it describes them as people who were righteous before God, and that they walked blamelessly in all of his commandments and statutes of the Lord. Can you be described like Zechariah and Elizabeth? If you can, you can be confident that God is working out everything in your life right now, even in the darkness. If I know I'm the kind of person that Elizabeth and Zechariah are, I'm righteous before God, I can be confident that he is working in the darkness all things for my good and his glory. How did Zechariah and Elizabeth get to this position, this wonderful position? Well, we know the answer to that, don't we? No one is declared righteous before God by their own what? Works. They were clothed, as Isaiah 60 says. They were clothed in the righteousness of Jehovah, the righteousness of God. There's only been one way of salvation for all times. We're told in Genesis chapter number 15 that Abraham believed God and it was what? Imputed to him for righteousness. There's not two ways of salvation. The Old Testament way by keeping the law and the New Testament way by believing in Jesus. We've been saved by faith all along. It's always been by faith alone. And what he's saying here is that Elizabeth and Zechariah, like Abraham and like all Old Testament saints and like all New Testament saints, they believed God and it was imputed to them for righteousness. So here's the question. Have you believed that when Jesus died on the cross, it was for you? That he rose powerfully so you could be declared righteous. That you could get his righteousness on your account. So they were justified by faith. And then he says, though, justification 
or being declared righteous doesn't stop there. They also walk blamelessly before the Lord. Do you see this? They walk blamelessly. So he talks about their sanctification. People who've truly been born again will live different lives. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, very familiar verse says, if anyone be in Christ, they're a new creature. Behold, all things have passed away. All things have become what? Folks, listen, Zachariah and Elizabeth didn't become righteous by doing righteous deeds. They were declared righteous and then they did righteous deeds. When they were regenerated, they were given the power to do righteous deeds. So here's the question for you. Do you wanna know that your life is being guided by God and he's working in your life even in the darkness even when you're unbelieving and doubtful you have to be justified you have to be one of God's children one of those who love him and are called according to his purpose Zechariah's a pretty common guy there were 18,000 priests or so some would say as many as 20,000 in Israel at the time and what we're told about the priest is that in 1 Corinthians I'm sorry 1 Chronicles chapter 24 it's an easy way to remember this 1 Chronicles 24, there were 24 divisions of the priest that David gave. He gave 24 different orders. Now, the reason why he split them up into 24 is because Eliezer and Ithamar, the sons of Aaron, the original priest, high priest, they had all together 24 sons. So Aaron had 24 grandsons. So they divided up the priest into 24 categories. Everybody following me? Number eight was Abijah. Okay, quiz. What was number eight? Oh, you're good. What was number eight? Abijah, okay. So number eight was Abijah. He was the order of Zechariah's group. Now, after the exile from Babylon, they came back, there was only four groups left. But they wanted to have still have 24, so they took the four groups left, and they divided them into 24 and gave them the same names. So this is probably not genetically under the line of Abijah, but nevertheless, Zechariah was part of that group. Now, this was a pretty good deal. These priests only worked two weeks out of the year. Pretty good deal. Two weeks out of the year, that's all they did. Now, they did go in Passover. All 18,000 priests would come to Jerusalem, to the temple, for Passover. Quarter of a million lambs were sacrificed. They were butchers, blood from the top of their head to the bottom of their feet. But other than that, they had two weeks. And in those two weeks, they would be serving in the temple and there was a drawing. And the drawing was somewhat of a lottery. And if your straw got drawn, you were the one who got to go in the morning or the evening sacrifice and offer the incense on the altar of incense. This was a big deal. There were many priests who would live their entire life and never have the drawing. This was Zachariah's big moment. And so it says here that the lot fell on Zechariah. He was going to either go in the morning or the evening to offer the offer of incense on the altar of incense. Now, just as your reminder, Josephus, the historian, says that at the time of the temple, this temple had been renovated by Herod the Great, and it was massive. It was even more impressive than Solomon's temple. It was a massive temple. It covered some 35 acres And what we're told is by Josephus that on a clear day, you could be 30 miles out of the city and you could see the gold reflecting from the temple. When you got to the temple, let's remind ourselves, we're probably familiar with this, but there was a large outer court called the court of the Gentiles. Anybody could be there. Gentiles are Jews that wanted to worship Jehovah. 
It was a very large area. This is where the money changers would be. This is where people would sell the sacrifices, those kinds of things. Then you had what was called the Jewish women's court. And only Jewish women could be there or Jewish men. Jewish men or Jewish women could be there, but it was designated for Jewish women. And then you would get to the closest court, and that was the court of the Jewish men. And no one was allowed there except the Jewish men. And then when you went into the actual temple precinct, you would be right there into the holy place where there was furnishings. And then inside of that was the cube that was the holy of holies. It could only be entered by the high priest once a year on the day of atonement. But if you had your lot drawn, there was a morning sacrifice of a lamb. There was an evening sacrifice of the lamb. And what would happen is if your lot got drawn and it was your time of service, one of your two weeks, you got to go in and give the incense on the altar of incense. It was a picture of God's people praying and those prayers wafting up in beautiful fragrance into the nostrils of God and them hearing, him hearing their prayers and answering. So Zechariah's big moment, he goes into either the morning or evening. We're not sure which sacrifice, but what would happen is their lamb would be sacrificed on the altar outside of the holy place. They would take a golden bowl and they would take some of the ashes from the altar there they would go through into this um, holy place on the east side. And as they entered over on the west side, the closest to the Holy of Holies, the curtain of the Holy of Holies, where, where the very presence of God was. So other than a high priest, once a year, this was as close as anyone could get to the very presence of God. The Shekinah glory on the mercy seat, hovering above the mercy seat. So he would go in, and what they would do is they would take some of these, these ashes, they would place them into the incense, and that smoke would waft up, and the fragrance would waft up, and the folks that were praying outside, the believers that were praying in the other, other courts would see the smoke coming up, and it, was, it would be symbolic that their prayers were being heard and smelled, as it were, by God. There was fear, though, that if you went in and you did something wrong, like grabbing the altar that was grabbed when it was being moved in the Old Testament, or if you did something improper, that there would be death. So there was a lot of fear <clears throat> that was related, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> in going into the holy place. And so there was a delay, and the delay, we're told, is because an angel shows up. <clears throat> it's been 500 years since an angel has shown up. We go back to the time of Daniel, and this would be, we believe, to be the son of man, the pre-incarnate Jesus, who shows up in the, the fiery furnace. We would have to go back 800 years before we've seen regular miracles taking place with Elijah and Elisha. We have to, again, go back 400 years since God has sent a messenger. But here's Zechariah at his greatest moment. He's probably about to leave and there's an angel. And he's afraid. Every time angels show up, people get scared. And rightfully so. Been no messenger, been no angelic sighting for 500 years that we know of. And he says to Zechariah, he says, don't be afraid. Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You should call his name John. So at first take, what do you think the prayer request was that Zechariah was bringing before the Lord. There's no small amount of ink spilt in the commentaries on that question. 
I want to tell you what I don't think it is. I actually don't think the prayer request was by Zechariah that they would have a child. <laughs> the text already says they were old, and the King James puts it this way. For those of you that have a King James version, he was well stricken in years. I'm 49, almost 50, and there have been moments this year where I feel well stricken in years. Some of you know what that feels like. But, but even he says to the angel, later on he says, how can these things be? My wife's old and I'm old. This doesn't work out like that. So I don't believe that this was still on the prayer list for Zachariah and Elizabeth anymore. Here's what would happen. The priest would come and he would bring the prayer requests, the longings for all of God's people before God. So when he came to the table of incense, when he came to the altar of incense rather, he was bringing the prayers to God saying, God, keep your promises. You promised a deliverer. You promised a Messiah. You promised your people would be set free from the tyrants. When are you going to keep your promises? Please forgive us for our corporate sin. These were the kinds of prayers that Zechariah and any priest would have brought before the Lord. You know what Zechariah's name means? You know what it means? You might be taking notes here. What's what Zechariah's name means? Zechariah's name means God remembers. And Elizabeth's name, which is Aaron's wife's name, so she was named after the original high priest's wife's name, Elizabeth means God, my oath. In other words, God is faithful to keep his promises. You could take both their names and, and here's basically the sentence. God is the oath-keeping God. He keeps his promises. He promised he would deliver us. And that request, I believe Gabriel saying, God heard your request and he's going to answer it. Because in just another chapter, the shepherds are going to hear the angels stating together glory in the highest and peace on earth there's born this day in the city of david a what a savior who is christ the lord i don't believe this is a prayer request that he had actually prayed for a long time i think he'd given up on this prayer request in fact you'll notice in this text and in this period there was some shame if a lady did not have a child it was shameful if a man did not have a wife. It was also shameful if a woman didn't have a child, if they were married. And, and she's, you'll see in verse 7 here that she felt like that there was, this, there was this shame. And later on she says, now my reproach has been lifted. You see, even to those who looked on to righteous people, there was this idea of something must not be right in their lives because they don't have what they've been asking God for. So what Gabriel's saying here is, not only have I heard your prayer for deliverance for the people of God, but I've heard your prayer that you are also going to have a child. Here's the irony, because he didn't believe God what happens. He can't talk for nine months. My imagination goes wild here. He comes home from the greatest day of his life in his vocation. Maybe Elizabeth was out with the others outside of the temple during the altar, the offering on the altar of incense. But can you imagine what Elizabeth said when he got home? Like, so how was it? How was it? We find out later in the chapter that he, he couldn't hear either. So they're making sign language to him later when, when John is born. So the irony here is that for 400 years they'd heard nothing from God and when they finally hear something from God, Here's a believer who's righteous before God, who walks in the way of the Lord. He's a sanctified believer. He's growing in holiness, but he had a moment of doubt. And he paid the price. 
He didn't talk for nine months. Now, Elizabeth might have been happy with that. Who knows? But he didn't talk for nine months. Can you imagine when she came back from the doctor? She's like, this. she's like, okay, yeah, I got it, okay? I, I don't know what happened, but I do know this, that this moment was a moment where both Zachariah and Elizabeth understood that a prayer request they had no doubt given up on because they were so old and felt like God couldn't ever do that, even though it was a desire of their heart, that God was at work in their lives sovereignly, even when they doubted. Have any of us in this room doubted the promises of God? I want to confess first. I've been struggling all week. But the soul food of these passages is a reminder that even when my faith is cold, he will hold me fast. He's sovereignly at work in the darkness even when it's not apparent. He's sovereignly at work even in his people's lives when they are doubtful and unbelieving. God is at work in the darkness And may we allow our souls to long, to desire, to be uncomfortable with the brokenness before we celebrate the incarnation. This is what Luke leads us to, and it's helpful for us. Here's how I want to close our sermon today. I I want you to take out your hymnal before the worship team comes and leads us and we celebrate Lord's table. I, I want us to sing number 60, just our voices while you're seated just the first and the last verse of Be Still My Soul. This is one of those songs where we're talking to ourselves in a good way. We're preaching to ourselves. Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. So let's sing this together. This is the first verse, and we'll sing the third verse. If you know your parts, sing them. Here we go. Be still, my soul, the Lord is on your side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to your God to order and provide in every change. He faithful will remain. Be still, my soul, your best, your heavenly friend. Through thorny ways leads to a joyful end. Verse 3, be still, my soul, the hour is hastening on. Be still, my soul, the hour is hastening on. When we shall be forever with the Lord. When disappointment, grief, and fear are gone. Sorrow for God. Love's purest joys restored. Be still, my soul, when change and tears are past. All safe and blessed we shall meet at last. Oh Lord, we trust you. 
We pray for grace to trust you more. May you create in our hearts an empathy for the longing that our brothers and sisters in the Old Testament had for the coming of your Son, our Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And may we have an equal longing for his second coming to rule and reign forever as King of kings and Lord of lords. We praise you that you are at work, sovereignly at work, perfectly unhastened, unagitated at work in the darkness. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.